Uh, Happy New Year and welcome to the Cranog. This week we're chatting about folklore as it appears in film and TV. Our lovely hosts have picked a few elements from Scottish folklore from popular pieces of media and we're going to have a chat about how they were depicted, what was included, what was missed out, etc, etc, etc. And a quick bit of housekeeping, we now have a Kofi. So if you'd like to support the podcast and help us bring Scottish folklore to as many people as possible, you can find the link to donate in the show notes. Now, on with the podcast. So, I'm going to talk, be talking about the film The Water Horse, full name The Water Horse Legend of the Deep. It's a film that came out back in 2007. Some of you might have seen it. It wasn't a massive, massive box office hit, but it was quite popular. Um, it generally told the story of a young boy who came across an egg along the seashore and decided uh, during World War Two and decided he was going to put it in a bathtub. It hatched into this little creature that grew bigger, put it in a lock, grew even bigger, and then eventually uh, the the British troops thought it was a U-boat, tried to shoot it down, wasn't going so well, and it escaped into the sea, never to be seen again. It also had the show also the, the film also had the undertones of. The boy at the start of it, his dad had been lost at sea and he was not coming to terms with the fact that he was actually dead. And by the end, when the, the water horse disappears off into the sunset, he's come to de- terms with his, his father's disappearance as well. So there's the metaphors to underpin it as well. Um, it's directed by J. Russell, who did a lot of the kind of, I think he did the Chronicles of Narnia stuff and things as well, or was involved in that. Uh, so all kind of fantasy, folklore things. Um, and it was written by a, the children's author who also wrote Babe, so he's got a diverse range. Um, so in that one, the main creature is the water horse, which is described in its Wikipedia page as based on the, the Celtic water horse creature, so the Kelpe or the Ikyushka, um, or being influenced by that, but actually it's a, it's a lot more like our envisionment of the Loch Ness Monster. So the actual water horse, or the, the translation of the Gaelic of the Yushka, uh, is a creature that quite often found by deep locks would take the form of a horse. People would go near it to brush it or ride it, be trapped to it and dove down the locks where it would transform into an evil monster and typically devour them or certain parts of them. They were always dead. Um, or we had the Kelpie, which is more kind of known to the lowlands uh, and some other bits and pieces around about it sometimes appears more in the Highlands as well, at Berries or around Falkirk, where we've got the big statues. Um, but it's typically seen as more a stream animal and would take the form of humans on land with cloven hoofs and then sometimes mermaid-like, sometimes horse-like in water. Uh, Scotland loves its water-based creatures, typically quite mean other than the Selkie, which is a kind of an in-between uh, and quite often nice as well, but we like our evil sea creatures. Uh, and both the Kelpie and the Yushka, with the Yushka in my view being a bit of a darker cousin, even more so than the Kelpie, which still kills people. Um, they, are, they are being our water-based water horses. Uh, so not at all like the depiction in the film itself, which comes across more like the Loch Ness Monster. It's based on... I think the actual um, CGI that they used to put it together is based on a mixture of giraffe and horse and goat and all these kind of things that they build into the facial features so that it's recognisable to people as an animal, but 
something different to what we're used to. Uh, and the generalized shape of the kind of flippers and things is similar to um, the dinosaur based, the, the pleosaur based image that we have of Nessie of more recent times rather than the multi-humped one. It's the one single hump and then the neck coming up afterwards. Um, Nessie is quite an interesting one for Scotland. It's possibly what you would view as, well, not quite recent folklore. It's been going about for a little while now, but in comparison to a lot of the things we'll talk about, so uh, brownies and fairies and the fae and all that kind of thing, it's, it's more recent folklore. Um, and it's one where pictures was a big part of as well. So uh, the actual start of that film starts with an image, uh, one of the famous images of, ne of the outline of Nessie style thing. I think it's called the surgeon's image uh, or the surgeon's picture. Uh, and it's a, a guy saying, oh, it's not real. Um, and then actually during the film, they, they depict a bit where the fishermen see, um, it's called Crusoe in the film, not the ne Loch Ness Monster. It's named after Robinson Crusoe. Uh, and uh, they see Crusoe and they couldn't get a picture of it because it was being shelled by the British army who thought it was a U-boat. Um, but they, they faked a picture and this fake picture was what they they said was the picture of Nessie. Um, but Nessie in Scotland has quite a, a part in, well, a little part in the Scottish people's heart, quite a big part in all the tourists' heart, uh, and a massive part of Loch Ness. We went to, myself and Becca went for a fun trip around the Loch Ness Monster Museum when we were in around Loch Ness and got to see all of the, the bits and pieces they had from the earliest days. They built in caves and stuff so you could see what it was maybe like in, in Loch Ness down the deep parts. They uh, talked about all the actual stuff of Loch Ness, the animals that you'd find there. Um, they had feature film bits going on at different parts and sensory experiences uh, as well as any experiments or investigations they'd done into the possibility of a Loch Ness monster with their kind of sonar, deep sounding ones. Um, generally coming up with consensus at the end of the hour of wandering round that there was probably not a Loch Ness monster, but you know, it's a fun trip round anyway. <laughs> and it, it, it does ask the question, it's like, who knows? Even though they presented you an hour of probably not, but you know. <laughs> um, but the creature depicted in the film does quite closely fit our Loch Ness monster and does try in a way to explain why you don't really see them or where, why you go through periods of sightings. Because in it they have it being a creature that's born through this egg, but that it's not, it's a genderless creature. And when it's about to die, it produces another egg that's then found in another one. So there's only ever one at a time, and only one can be born once the last one's died. Um, so it's an interesting idea. I had to look to see if that was based on any kind of Scottish folklore that I could find. And I couldn't see any Loch Ness monster legends or any Kelpie or Ikushka or any other kind of water creature legends in Scotland that has that kind of idea but possibly there is, who knows um, so the, that was my investigation into the, the water horse or what I will rename it as the Loch Ness Monster ripped off <laughs> I really really liked um, the wee like detail about him using the water horse as like a way to come to terms with his dad's death at sea because like that's so in keeping with a lot of like Scottish water folklore where it's used especially when it's kind of to do with the sea rather than lakes but like a lot of it is used to explain why people have disappeared at sea and like they've never come back so it's just it just feels like it fits and nicely. it's kind of nice and warm in the way that a lot of the folklore like the Kelpies and the Yushkas and all them kind of things were thought to be kind of warnings off 
swimming in deep locks and going in the cold and everything. Whereas this is almost like a, a warm side of like this has helped them come to terms with the positive thing. So they're flipping the, the, the kind of warning on its head in a way. Yeah. Being like, actually do go and befriend a giant evil sea monster. <laughs> well, evil was ambiguous. It tried to kill a few people, but it did try to harm it first. So, you know. On a scale of spilt your coffee to you were mistaken for a German U-boat, how bad is your week going? <laughs> <laughs> how, how they managed to have that believably in the film. First of all, why is there a German U-boat in Loch Ness? Well, it was World War Two, and it was meant... I don't think it was specifically stated to be Loch Ness, especially since there was an opening out to the sea where these U-boats might come in, and they'd put a big net across to try and catch the U-boats. And part of the end of the film is our Loch Ness monster, our Crusoe, jumping over the nets, clearing the nets and getting out. Because nets are notorious for stopping boats. Well, it was probably <laughs> a thing for you, but if you had heavy-weighted chain nets, whatever, you yeah. might, might catch a U-boat, who knows... <laughs> an interesting it's a really extreme fishing <laughs> yeah. imagine rick staying up with that <laughs> u-boat fishing um Loch Ness monster is just so good for kids like it's so strange because i remember as a child being absolutely petrified of horses i wouldn't want to go anywhere near a horse ever but then like dinosaurs i was so into despite the fact that they were like they're f- quite frightening and like a pleosaur as you were saying i loved those things i would have been so in love with the Loch Ness monster, searching for it all the time, and like it is very popular with kids. Yeah, and I like that you know there's so much ambiguity that we have, you know, we feel warm towards Nessie, but at the same time we don't know anything about her. She like she could be out for blood, but we're like, oh, that's Nessie. I have a, a gripe with the the film producer, and not just because they called it Water Horse and it wasn't the Water Horse, but also because. They filmed most of it in New Zealand. They were kind of like Scottish weather is not designed for filming good, nice, aesthetic films. But the countryside in New Zealand is very similar. So they filmed like the odd scene in Scotland, but pretty much everything was filmed in New Zealand. <laughs> very, very strange. I think Nessie's going to turn up in films and TV for a long time. She's, she's a good character. Yeah. Top-notch actress. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I she's got an Oscar nomination in this year. <laughs> Which iteration of her? Because with the new eggs all the time are they reborn like how does it work she has eras she's like taylor swift <laughs> so when she was attacking the u-boat people was that just like that ne- was nessie that- reputation era okay so for me i've also chosen a beastie and possibly the most depicted beast in popular culture, and that is the Scotsman himself. The proud, honest men wearing brightly coloured kilts and waving claymores, proclaiming their love of their clan and their land, and that we shall be free. You can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom. I'm going to give myself PTSD in a second. So men who, despite their savage way of life, are nonetheless braver and truer than any English warrior. But much of this depiction is entirely mythical. Oh yes, it's true that all men look good in a kilt, and I will die on this hill. But our current ideal of the Highlander is actually mostly a Victorian invention. So let's talk about the things that are true first. It is true that clans were the main method of social organisation in Scotland in our history. Clan life was characterised by feuds, 
So there were a lot of warriors. The land in Scotland, particularly in the Highlands, was often very difficult to cultivate. Wars were then waged over securing the most profitable land, and as part of this, clans formed, centred around a chief and his family. Here's our first myth. Not every member of a clan were related by blood to the chief. Most were tenants, and they'd take on the clan surname, maybe as a show of solidarity, or to obtain protection, or even just to obtain the right to live and work on the land. Also, not all clans can trace their roots back to prehistoric Scots, which I think were fairies. Uh, the Frasers, for example, think Jamie Fraser from Outlander, originally came from France, while the MacLeods were Viking invaders. Uh, so already we've got this idea that we have ancient lineages that have branched off and you know have been in Scotland since its very inception, since it sprung fully formed from the rock. But this is not actually the case. Another huge myth we have surrounding Highlanders and clan life is Tartan. I'm sure most people with a drop of Scottish blood in them or a mick in front of their last name have searched up their clan Tartan online. The riot of colour and patterns you can find now, however, date back only to the Victorian age. Tartan was most definitely present in clan society, though. In fact, archaeologists have found the oldest surviving tartan cloth in Falkirk, and that's dating back to 230 AD. It was found in a big vase full of uh, Roman silver coins, and you can actually see it in the National Museum of Scotland. It's very cool. It's just a simple brown and white wool weave, um, and most plaid or tartan weaves were made up of one or two colours, often just wool. Maybe if you're feeling fancy, you'd have a third. Um, but this would really be dependent on the availability of dyeing material. So the colours you had would be more regionally based instead of clan based. And you'd have a lot of similar colours. So you'd have a lot of browns or whites or greys because that's, you know, like the colour the wool will come in. Uh, there is records, though, of a 1572 case in which a woman sued a weaver for making a cloth in his own fashion rather than to her specific instructions, which can indicate that tartans were used to express individuality in their pattern and weave, even if they all were the same colour. So we can assume that tartan was important, we can assume that it was worn, but the colours we have now, it's kind of mythical. So where has this idea kind of sprouted from? The majority of Highland clans fought with Bonnie Prince Charlie during the Jacobite Rebellion, after which, the 1746 Act of Parliament made the wearing of tartan a criminal offence in all areas except for the military. Professor Tom Devine calls this part of a wider process through which imagined and false Highland traditions were absorbed by lowland elites to form the symbolic basis of a new Scottish identity. In plain English, what he means is that tartans quickly became of interest to Southerners, and not just Southerners, but to Scottish elites who were basing themselves either in London or Edinburgh, after seeing the Blackwatch Regiment's triumph in subsequent wars. So we have Tartan moving from like the image of a peasant, of a savage warrior, to someone who actually we can have a lot of national pride in. Um, and this is also, they think, where we got the idea that you're not supposed to wear underwear or pants under your kilt, um, because it said in the military uniform, 
that the soldier must wear a kilt, but there was no mention of pants at all. So I can imagine a bunch of, bunch of soldiers thinking it was the funniest thing ever to be like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to wear pants. We'll see if anyone notices. I doubt they mooned the enemy. I feel like that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> anyway, during this time, we also see an interest in the Jacobite rebellion as a romantic battle instead of one that was a genuine threat. Part of this is because uh, there was really no way for the Jacobites to recover from the Hanover uh, squashing them. I can think of no other word to say. Um, since there was absolutely no threat then, it's much easier to see the Jacobites in a sympathetic light. Therefore, the typical image of a Highlander moved from this warlike savage, as we were saying, to gallant and heroic, and maybe even a little bit hot. Uh, definitely romantic heroes at least we know that bonnie prince charlie was definitely sexualized as the prince in the heather uh, scottish dios uh, diaspora also began to promote this interpretation of scottish history in the face of a huge wave of anti-scottish sentiment in england during the 1700s the depiction of a loyal warrior allowed scots to defend their british membership without having to fully assimilate to an english way of life and then finally the one that most scotch people no, Sir Walter Scott. He really got the ball rolling in his novels for this image of a Highlander that we now have. And also in organising King George IV's visit to Edinburgh in 1822. He had a group of Highlanders arrive dressed in tartan and he also presented the king with a royal Stuart tartan, igniting the tradition of wearing this tartan to official events and spurring on the creation of manifold patterns, because of course, once the king wore it, every lord and lady wanted a clan tartan. All in all then, the Scottish Highlander is as much a creature of myth as the Kelpie. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, because it's quite nice to have traditions today that help us connect with our history, like wearing your tartan to a Cayley or a wedding, or being able to point back to your family and your clan and understand that you have a long history in Scotland. Also, have you ever seen Richard Madden in a kilt? You're welcome. If you look online now, the choices of tartan you have. So for my my clan tartan, oh, buying into this, is like an offshoot of the MacLeod. So I can use the MacLeod tartan. Um, and they have like ancient, modern, hunting, uh, ceremonial, and it's all like slightly different pattern designs. So it's really like strange, like having to pick one of those, but it's also quite nice because I can get a dress in all sorts of different colors. How do you pick it if you're not born in Scotland? I wasn't born here, but I would love a tartan. I think you could just pick the one you like, to be honest. Like there's, it's nice to wear like your clan or your family tartan for a ceremonial thing. And, you know, so like if my brothers went to an event, they'd all be wearing the same kilt. So that's quite nice. And it shows like the family. But there's also like the one David had is anyone can wear. Uh, you can anyone can wear the black watch, which is the military one. Anyone can wear. Um, there's loads like the. Not the Stuart. Apparently only the royals can wear that. But I think we should anyway. But there's, you know, like the classic red look is a public tartan. I think there's like not a, a not a person in Scotland I think who would come up to you and be like tell me your last name you're wearing the wrong tartan. If we 
right? Like if we did invent this, then anyone can wear it. Like it's fun to have it attached to your name. But Miriam uh, Margulies made her own tartan. So maybe we should just start doing that. They may decide if you're wearing a different clan's tartan that that is your last name though. Because I had a Mackenzie one for a while because I pretty much, when I was younger, went for whatever tartan that was on the reduced rack because my family's been in Scotland so long we've pretty much got every type of last name you could think of in the family tree. So you can pick whatever one. You're, I've probably got a relation with that name. So I yeah, I would get people that would come up and be like, oh, Mackenzie, me too. And I'm like, sure, last name is white, but it's fine. <laughs> That's old age identity theft. <laughs> we're talking about tartan we do need to say like huge props to dame vivian westwood who really brought like tartan back into modern fashion r.i.p icon and i've read a really interesting article when i was researching that was talking about her reintroducing tartan to punk is a huge reason why tartan is now tied to the nationalist movement and if she hadn't done that there's every chance that it could have actually been a unionist show because it used to be you know like you wore the tartan it was the military and you're fighting for the british military but then by tying it to punk it's like rebellion and she went to see the queening to get her dv or or damehood without any pants on so if that's not rebelling against the english monarchy i don't know what is (laughs) in braveheart or the the tartans and that are quite dark aren't they I think so. They tend to, they're all quite, um, they, like, there's none that I really remember. They're all quite muted. Um, I think, strangely, though, there's uh, there's evidence that saffron was used to dye because there was a tradition in Ireland that, saf- like, you'd have a saffron shirt. Um, so, like, really bright yellows. So it would have been quite common, I think, to have found yellow wool and have, like, yellow tartan. But that doesn't look quite as gritty. I do find it quite interesting to see the, um, like, cause my, uh, like other than chatting with my gran and my family, my interaction with Highlanders growing up was from films, TVs and books. And it's always like the rogue Highlander and you know, the, the really terrible romance novels. And you've got like a shirtless guy wearing a kilt on the front. I'm like, that's my people. And I just kind of wonder like there's, it's so weirdly sexualized, like, it's a total like it, it's it's a fetish. It it's a Highland <laughs> fetish. It's been totally fetishized. Do I have that fetish? Absolutely. Am I gonna question it? Sure. Actually, I have a question for Liana. As someone who is not currently living in Scotland, like what was your impression of a Highlander? Did you have like the traditional look that we were describing? Atlander, yeah. Like that's the one, yeah, that was my introduction. And then I spent a lot of time online. So I got on the weird side of the internet where you get all the Highlander slash werewolf erotic novels. It would be no exaggeration to say that fairies dominate Scottish folklore and indeed many, many fairy tales, as we may have heard growing up and throughout our lifetime. So it's unsurprising that there are also so many fairy depictions in popular culture today. Whether they use the original fae spe- spelling or the various alter- altering spellings of fairy, there are fairies everywhere that we look. 
in music, poetry, film, and even laundry detergent. So in the past on this podcast, we have covered many fairy stories. Um, and if you're a regular listener, you'll probably recall a few um, of evil fairies, such as changelings that can steal young children, take their place, or even mis mischievous fairies like brownies that play pranks on you and rearrange your house. And realistically, a fairy could be any enchanted creature. They're often immortal, at the very least live very long lives. And they can also bring good fortune, wealth and protection to humans and animals. They're not always bad. Some fairies even marry and have children with humans. Though in those stories, it is often suggested that the humans were in some way compelled to love that fairy. Similar to in the story where the fairy princess married um, a MacLeod clan chief in the story in Dunvegan Castle. However, in that story, the fairy did also leave a mystical cloak for her husband and their son um, to keep them safe and to keep future generations of the clan also safe. So again, some good fairies, they're not all bad. And this concept has been taken into modern media a lot more, where fairies are often depicted as either very tall or very beautiful, um, and then others have tiny wings or they themselves are very small. Um, and these are quite contrasting visions, but in a lot of cases, the fairies are the good guys. In Lord of the Rings, this depiction is taken a step further where they're kind of made out to be elves, kind of slightly longer pointier ears, but still that very overall kind of perfect look, very ethereal, um, very beautiful, um, even though they do still keep some of the similarities um, of the classic kind of fairy creatures, um, such as kind of the very human-like appearance, despite being mythical creatures. In The Lord of the Rings, there is also a reference to the elves living in Eldamar before fleeing to new pastures. And this location itself was nicknamed the Fairy by some of the hobbits in the story. And this is quite similar to the way that it's described in folklore, as a lot of the fairies would live in the Fae land, or the land of the Fae, or the Fairy land. However, unlike Rivendell and some of the other locations that are shown in the movies, with kind of grand waterfalls and loads of light streaming in, Scottish folklore fairies preferred to live in the dark, often dwelling in forests and caves, and there were certainly no architects like what we see in Lord of the Rings. But the premise of the fairies living on their own, with their own species and preferring to be isolated and unbothered by others, still keeps to tradition. In many works of art, folklore fairies are also quite disfigured or unattractive, unlike what we see in Lord of the Rings, which is again kind of the beautiful mystical creatures. And both types of fairies, however, are very powerful and possess magic that can enchant different items, like the cloak in the Dunvegan Castle story. In Lord of the Rings, um, they are, the, the hobbits sorry, are given a cloak by the elves, uh, which is helping them to hide from orcs and other evil beings throughout their quest. So it kind of serves a similar function. Now we also mentioned the fairies that were the small fairies with the wings. And this too does stem from folklore. Some folklore suggests that fairies descended from angels and perhaps that's where the concept of the wings derived from. The fairies were also sometimes called little people in some folklore tales. And there are loads of examples of winged fairies, um, such as the ch changelings. And this perhaps led the way to many modern depictions, like in cartoons where you have Tinkerbell um, and other stories where there's a small, tiny fairy um, loads of fairy dust, kind of sparkle, glitter, a lot of light. And all these fairies are depicted as being paragons of good, being angelic and small and delicate with delicate features, and they're often protectors. Folklore fairies, however, as we mentioned earlier, can be anything but that. 
Last year we did an episode on folklore and art and we talked about a painting called The Quarrel of Oberon and Titania. They were a fairy king and queen. You can Google the painting for the visuals, but briefly, the painting shows fairies in their natural realm, kind of dark, gloomy forest. And as you zoom in, you'll notice more and more creepy details, such as really large bugs or scary faces and lurking creatures, and even the fairies torturing other beings and other fairies. So definitely not as nice as some people make them out to be, and certainly not always as beautiful and enchanting as they appear in Lord of the Rings. I don't know, somehow in my head I'd never quite spliced together. Like, they're very similar visually. The idea of Scottish folkloric fairies, the fae, the evil creatures that'll steal your children or um, whisk you away for a hundred years or um, give you the, the ability to never tell a lie and this kind of stuff. And then the sweet fairy godmother Tinkerbell-style character of, of more recent mm. uh, like cartoons and films depiction when you you speak about the kind of the links with them and that not all of our folkloric bears are evil some of them do they give protection like the fairy flag of, of the dumbagans mm -hmm. and i just like the the bringing together of the, the two creatures which both called fairy and, and fae and but in my mind had never been one of the same right. uh, mm -hmm. a, a fun comparison what i really enjoy about um fairies is how much they've changed and evolved so like we've got the as you were saying the kind of more like the lord of the Rings style they look like people but they're a bit sinister like you don't want to cross them and then you know they get repurposed they get reused stories get retold and now we have the ya fairy the ya fantasy fairy which is like <laughs> Leanna space says it all it's just like <laughs> hot men with wings and like they're super overpowered and like that, that that's it <laughs> i think it all comes back to to tolkien's fairies he just made them so magical and mystical and suddenly people are like hey they're kind of hot i'd like completely moved away from the fact that for a really long time a fairy was the word you used to describe when some terrible unfortunate event happens and you've got no earthly explanation to be like yep yeah, the fairies did it. It was the fairies. Yeah, like when you say like, oh, touch wood, because you don't want the fairies in the wood to hear all these good things that are going to happen to you. They want to jinx it. Like even stuff like mm -hmm. that. And people just don't really think about like, oh, wait, fairy. But then in kids' stories, it's always like, oh, the fairies are good guys. And then in Lord of the Rings, they're like, even in the movie, like when you look at kind of the way that it's shot, like all the shots of the elves are always very kind of, it, it makes you sort of really look at them and sort of, look up to them and I don't know it's shot in such a way to kind of romanticize them whereas in folklore like have you seen the paintings <laughs> the older tales still do go with a very beautiful initial image and then quite often it switches after mm. that so um mm -hmm. the ballad of no not the ballad of uh Thomas the Rhymer mm -hmm. he's attracting transpire beauty to go off forever to the fairy realm with her mm -hmm. and that's part of what draws him in and uh, the fairy queen and even Tamlin is, is kind of depicted as quite a beautiful creature, although the rewriting of that and the description of her largely comes from Walter Scott, who we talked about earlier, who had quite a, a way of embellishing stories. So. And then the fairies of Merlin's Crag, a beautiful woman shows up and he goes to dance the night away with her. He comes back and he's missed like half his ch children's lifetimes. Yeah. So 
the, the beauty thing's maybe quite often been a constant, but it's always been deception up until more yeah. recent times, rather than in in Tolkien, their their beauty is almost a reflection of their inner purity and things. Mm-hmm. Whereas it had always been a, a, a thin veil previously. What I do really like is the way that Tolkien um taps into this idea of like the other world and you know how the the elves go off to the Grey Havens and it like kind of reflects this whole kind of modern society. We don't know where the fairies have gone. They've all like left. I really like that. And as well there's the the fairy realm which was in traditional Scottish folklore. It was a place where time went really slowly. Mm-hmm. So you could feel like you'd only been there a week and you were years away. It had that immortal quality. And in Tolkien's writing, where the elves is from is where is their immortal land. So Yeah. But I feel like that's actually quite... When you think about it, that's more of a common feeling than you'd imagine. So if you've ever been for like a, a long walk in the woods by yourself and you come upon places... And you just suddenly get this feeling like like time is completely still. Like you can't hear the birds singing. There's definitely something watching you. Like you feel like there's movement at the corner of your eyes. And it's like it can be quite comforting and quite sinister. So I imagine like people, if that was like your route home, was walking 40 minutes through the woods by the light of a flickering torch, if you were lucky. Like, yeah, you could imagine, oh, I'm in the fairylands now, mate. One of the other things I quite like about the fairies is that they are something that is, through a lot of these childhood tales, something that people are most familiar with, probably out of all of the Scottish mm-hmm. kind of folk creatures. They have this idea of, of a fairy. And as I say, it's in the youngest books from when you're three, four, you'll be reading or anything. They're there. The Elves and the Shoemaker are a mm-hmm. type of little fairy that would have been read to me as about three or four years old. And I think it's one that people who even don't appreciate or look a lot in folklore will feel a connection with. I th- I think sometimes as well if the fae may be like a mixture between a fairy, like a folklore fairy from history and possibly a god. Because you still have like the fairies were just like these chaotic creatures. Not always necessarily evil, but they would come and they could like mess up your lives. Whereas a god could be both very destructive, but also very benevolent. And you do have like a very long Irish tradition, at least, of having gods that were human. Um, And so like kind of mixing these, because they would be described as being like absolutely beautiful and and stunning to kind of show that they were like the level above a regular human. And then to just have these kind of like two traditions mixed. So we've got these fairies that come in and they're like the level above could link in with the kind of the the pagan ideas a lot of the pagan religions had all the kind of spirits miniature gods and such the hundreds of them i think was it yeah. romans or the greeks that had the different spirits for every river and stream and everything mm. like that it was almost yeah. like a small god to that so yeah fairies maybe are kind of the celtic embracing of that idea mm-hmm. So I'm doing the Witches of Macbeth for the folklore part of this. So as a sort of a historical background, uh, when Macbeth was first written, um, 
well, there was a massive interest in witches and not in a good way. People would blame them for everything, for every sort of disease or disaster or people, animals, crops dying, the witches were blamed for it. Uh, and that's when King James came into um, the spotlight as well. And he made witchcraft into a capital offense. And he also wrote a book called Demonology, uh, which was a sort of philosophical treatise kind of thing on witchcraft and religion and how the two connect and also on how to locate and kill a witch. Um, so when the play was written, um, those depictions and those elements of witchcraft were played up. So we see them being able to harm animals, uh, to be able to control or influence the weather. And their evil and cruel nature is emphasized through that. And people have assumed that that was probably uh, Shakespeare's way of gaining the king's uh, favor by depicting them as something very, very evil and just playing into the king's fantasy in that way. Um, so the way that, uh, so the, the play, the Macbeth play was influenced by uh, Holinshed's chronicles of England, Scotland and Ireland. But in those chronicles, we actually do not see any witch. Uh, so the three sisters are described as fairies, actually, not as witches. Uh, but that was an addition of Shakespeare in the play. Um, and then let's see. So they're also they're actually never called witches in the play either. They're called the Weird Sisters, which is a play of on the old English word meaning uh, fate. Uh, and throughout the play, you kind of see that Macbeth relies very heavily on what they've told him and on their prophecies for his own actions. Uh, so in the end, they do kind of end up becoming fate, but he's the one that makes them his own fate. Um, so their name ends up being absolutely right. And we see a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy coming into play as well. Um, and people have said, and they've pointed out before, that they seem to resemble the fates and I mean, as we have them in Greek mythology as well, and they typically represent the past, the present, and the future. And we see one of them uh, spinning like the like the weaves. Uh, one of them measures, and the other one cuts. Uh, when it comes to that, um, and the one adaptation that I looked into because it's one of my favorite movies is the Tragedy of Macbeth that came out like two years ago with Denzel Washington, um, and we see uh, Catherine Hunter playing all three witches. Um, and it's a very weird sort of portrayal and I thought it was quite unique because you only ever really see one of them and it kind of seems like it's one person being possessed by two others. Um, and even in the way that she moves, because it's very contortionist, like and she does like a lot of very weird bird like movements. Again, it, she kind of plays into this whole possession angle of it, which I thought was very interesting uh, because again, it brings up this whole idea that existed in the time that the play was originally conceived that witches would be possessed by the devil or by one of his demons so we kind of see that element sipping into her own portrayal as well so many centuries later um, and I thought that was a very interesting way of how the folklore that existed around witches translates into the centuries in such different ways so you have the witches being possessed in like the 1600s and then in like 2020 you see that being like a very very visual element in a movie I love that one actor played all three of the sisters that's so cool yeah no she was amazing in it it was my favorite performance of that year 
it's really good. It's really, really good. And she does a, an amazing thing with her body, and she kind of puts her arms between her legs. It's just very weird movement. It's mm. incredible. It always impresses me how much of like Elizabethan theatre and kind of around that time was so aimed at like impressing a monarch or like getting in the good graces of a monarch. Yeah, I do remember because um, we were taught this as well, like when you read Macbeth that Shakespeare wrote it as like a warning to the king of like, don't get too big for your boots. <laughs> but, uh, and you know, to have these witches because that's something that James genuinely feared. And uh, like James at one point had this belief that witches went to sea in an eggshell to sink ships. And like, I don't, I just have no idea where a myth like that could have sprouted from. Why an eggshell? A lot of these kings were quite inbred. It was chance they was just mad. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That explains it all. But no, I was going to talk about my favourite representation of the witches from Macbeth is actually in Terry Pratchett's Weird Sisters, which is called Weird Sisters. And it's like a whole satire of Macbeth, but it really focuses on the three witches. And so he ha represents them as the maid, the mother, and the crone. And how each of them like embody being a witch in different ways. So you have one who's like very jovial and loving as the mother, but she's also like rude. And that's, you know, why she might have been rejected as a woman because she's like very openly quite sexual. And then the crone is just like nasty to everybody, but I love her. The die for her granny weatherwax all the way and like <laughs> and then we've got the maid who's trying her best but it's just like a little bit odd and doesn't fit in with the rest of society and that's i think such a good interpretation of the witches is just like like they're not necessarily evil but they've been absolutely rejected from society to such an extent that they're going to be blamed no matter what happens i think they're meant to be erecting a monument uh, like a memorial for all the women that were and men uh, who were executed as part of the part of the trial. So I'm in, I'm interested to see what that looks like. Just a fun fact for our popular conception of witches. So if you think of a witch, you think of the woman in the pointy hat stirring her cauldron. She's got a cat on her broom, kind of thing. That this comes from women who used to be brewers because uh, women weren't really allowed is the wrong word but they didn't really have the same like career opportunities as men but one thing they could do is was brew and it would be women who was in charge of brewing and to advertise that they had beer available for people passing by they would wear pointed hats so you could say oh there's the brewer over there and then they'd have their large cauldron where they would stir and brew the beer and in order to keep the mice and bugs out of the hops or whatever, they'd have a cat. <laughs> so. So on a similar note, kind of carry on, carrying on quite naturally from Liana's, um, mine's also has a kind of element of fate uh, in it. Um, so I'm going to be looking at the Will of the Wisp from Brave, which is one of my favourite movies of all time. 
So the depiction of the Will-o'-the-Wisp in Brave is this creature that's kind of made up of blue flames. It looks a little bit like a cute little alien in the film and they make this really adorable sound when they disappear. So the Disney wiki describes them as spiritual ethereal beings that represent past lives. They have the appearance of small floating bright blue flames. They play an important role in the film as they can lead one to their fate and destiny. Obviously, fate plays an important role in the film, uh, whose tagline is, if you had the chance to change your fate, would you? Um, So a quick recap of the plot, if you're unfamiliar with Brave, um, and you can skip ahead if you don't want any spoilers, but it has been out since 2012, so like, that's up to you. Um, So, it's based in medieval Scotland. The main character is Merida, who's the daughter of the king and queen of Dunbroch. Uh, Merida's mum wants her to marry for a political alliance with one of the clans so they organise a tournament to pick out the best suitor. However, Merida doesn't want to get married and this causes a lot of strife between her and her mother. So Merida wants to change her fate because she wants to ride through the glen firing arrows into the sunset rather than getting married. And that's when the wisps come in because they're a symbol of fate. She's riding away from home, upset after an argument with her mum, when the wisps lead her to a witch's cottage and Merida buys a spell from the witch that will change her fate. Except she clearly kind of wasn't in the know about what you do when you get offered a wish from a genie or a witch, um, and that you have to be really specific about what you want, because instead of saying that she doesn't want to get married, she words her request as, I want a spell to change my mum. That'll change my fate. And as a result, her mum gets turned into a bear. So Merida then becomes preoccupied with sneaking her bear mother around the castle, uh, placating the clans and finding a way to reverse the witch's spell and turn her mum back into a human. So the wisps' appearances throughout the film, um, they come into key points throughout the story. So the first is in the prologue where young Merida, who gets along with her mum and her dad, loses an arrow into the forest and she goes to find it and the wisps lead her to the arrow and also to the bear Mordu, who is the story's antagonist. The second appearance is years later. The wisp leads her to the witch's cottage where she buys a spell that will change her fate. The third appearance uh, comes in the middle of the film. The wisps lead Merida and her mum to a ruined castle where they discover the truth about Mordu, that he was once a prince who was changed into a bear after asking for a spell to change his fate, much like Merida's situation. The fourth instance is when her mother is being pursued by angry clansmen and the wisps lead Merida to the confrontation taking place so she can save her mum. And the last appearance of the wisp comes when Mordu is killed and the spirit of the prince is freed and he becomes a wisp himself. And as a side note, as a novelist, I really enjoy how in a story about fate, the wisps, which we've already established are creatures of fate, appear at the most important plot points in the story. So you've got the hook where it sets up the setting, the key characters and the antagonist and the theme. We've got the wisps appearing then. The first plot point where Merida responds to the inciting incident by deciding that she wants to change her fate and buying the spell. At the midpoint where she finds out the truth about Mordu, um, it also changes the character's understanding of their situation and gives them... uh, It reveals a key to fixing her mum. And then the wisps appear again in the climax. They literally lead Merida to the climax and appear right at the story's resolution. So it's just nice that... In the writing, they've incorporated these um, these symbols of fate and kind of they lead the characters to the key plot points. So, what about the wisps in Scottish folklore? 
a lot of research was done by Disney in the making of the film, and I think they did a really good job across the board, but also capturing the essence of Will o' the Wisp. So firstly, the name. When you hear Will o' the Wisp, it's really easy to misinterpret it as Willow, as in a tree, the wisp, leading a lot of people to think that Willow is a specific character and that she is a wisp as a creature. Um, but the phenomenon's name is Will, as in the future, or in reference to the inevitable, O, as in of, and then the wisp. So, so the phenomenon, because I think it is more of a ph- phenomenon rather than a creature, is called in plain English, Will of the Wisp, just to clear up any misunderstanding. The Will of the Wisp are mysterious lights that would appear to travellers typically in marshy and boggy settings and would lead them off the safe path and into danger. The traveller would spot these bizarre lights and pursue them and they're typically led into the bog where they would then perish. There's conflicting accounts on whether the wisps are malevolent or not, whether they deliberately lead the travellers to their doom, so they kind of lead them off the path and then the lights all go out and suddenly the traveller is stranded and doesn't know where to go, Um, or if they just merely exist and it's the traveller's own curiosity that leads them to their doom, and there's certainly a question of fate and free will within that debate. Um, however, just as there are many stories of wisps leading travellers to treachery, there's also a lot of stories about wisps leading them to treasure. So you can see where the kind of incentive to follow the wisps and take the risk comes from. There's also accounts of will the wisps being spirits of those who are in purgatory, left to wander between heaven and hell, neither truly good and ne- neither truly evil, which ties in nicely with Mordu's spirit becoming a wisp. Uh, I also took a note down of some regional names from across the UK because the Will of the Wisp can be found in a lot of different settings. Uh, these were from mysteriousbritain.co.uk. So in East Anglia, in East Anglia, we've got the Hobby Lantern. Lancashire does Peggle Lantern. Somerset and Cornwall, Joan the Wad. Devon, the Hinky Punk. Shropshire, Will the Smith. <laughs> Do you like that? The Hinky Punk. Wait till, wait till you hear Lola in Scotland. Um, Shropshire, Will the Smith, not to be confused with the actor Will Smith uh, Worcestershire, the Pinkett West Country, Jackie Lantern, Northumberland Jenny with the Lantern and good old Lowland Scotland, the Spunkies <laughs> So the truth about the Wisp They're probably merely a phenomenon caused by marsh gas which is caused when vegetation rots and produces methane which was thought to spontaneously combust to form these little flames Um, So I want to finish up with a quote from Mark Andrews who worked on Brave and he said that the Will of the Wisps are almost like Marley's ghost in a way because Marley's ghost isn't an evil spirit even though he's frightening he's trying to warn Scrooge to change his ways that's what the Wisps are doing there's duality in them because there's neither good they're neither good or evil they lead Merida into trouble but in the end they lead her exactly to where she needs to go and I think that's lovely but maybe the bog victims would disagree. I like that they're like quest markers as you're going along. Yes. <laughs> they're just they're just fun. I like that there's a kind of real life element to them. Like an actual natural reason why They could be, yeah. Yeah. But no, I've I I must admit the Willow Wisps is not something I've ever read a story about and I've read a lot of folklore, mm. so there was one it was from Shrop- Shropshire and it was Will the Smith. Um and from memory, there was a guy, it was a purgatory example, so he was stuck in purgatory. Or no, he was going to be going to purgatory, but he was told that he could, if he wanted, wander like the land. And he asked for one thing, 
or he was granted one thing that he'd be allowed to take with him as a spirit into the world and it was like a piece of burning peat. So it's that idea of purgatory and then the, the fire and the glowiness. That's that's their like version, if you like. Mm. Will Smith just wandering about. And then Scotland's <laughs> what is it a mixture of good and bad? Generally, like you kinda of mentioned there's a bit of both or is there a balance towards one side or I would argue that it's more kind of it depends on the take. I think you can either take them as they're like fairy creatures and they're mischievous and a bit malevolent and like they will deliberately lead you off the path. Like there's stories about them leading someone off the path and then there's like this evil little giggle and then suddenly they disappear and the lights go off and you're stuck in a bog and you don't know how to get out. But likewise, um, there's a consensus that they just kind of are there. Which I think that's why they're so fascinating because it's like it's that kind of free will slash fate debate. Like, are they leading you to your doom or are you just following them? Which I really like, and I think that makes them really good to tie into Brave and like the themes within that story. So yeah, I suppose in some way they kind of led her to a bit of her doom anyway. She turned her mum and all of her brothers into bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know the Will of the Wisps remind me of. Um, have you ever seen In Spirited Away? When she goes to visit the witch, Yubaba's sister. Um, and there's this little, like, lantern that has, like, a little foot. And it hops along and, like, guides her to her house. And I actually really like that depiction as well. Because, you know, the Will of the Wisps guide her to the witch. And in Spirited Away... The lantern guides her to the witch, just the same. Mm-hmm. So it's like these two magical things are connected, um, and it's are the will of the wisps like servants of the witch, or do they just kind of guide people to like, you need a wise woman, you need help, then you go in deep into the woods and you find the witch's cottage, which is quite a, a nice tale. Yeah. Is the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast a will of the wisp? <laughs> <laughs> Be our guest. <laughs> a very loud will of the wisp. New, new genre of content on our social media. Is it a will of the wisp? <laughs> the cat eyes on the road in the middle of the Could night. Will of the wisp. <laughs> I'm actually glad that you sort of explained the spellings. I think listening to it, I was thinking willow, like a singular word willow as well and i was getting a bit confused i was trying to picture what this thing looks like i can fully believe as well that they're like spirits of the bog trying to find more victims because we do know like of the bog bodies that have been recovered i think mostly down in england i'm thinking of cheddar man um was he in even in england or was he in the netherlands tolland man no yeah yeah but of those bog bodies, there has been signs that either they were like executed or possibly even sacrificed. And just the peat bog is the perfect place to preserve their bodies. So if that was known or if, you know, bog bodies had been found just in the past, you know, searching into the bog and you find an almost perfectly preserved person, like that area immediately takes on a very sinister and like mystical nature. Yeah, and there is a kind of belief that the Will-o'-the-Wisps are reincarnated 
not reincarnate, but like they they are spirits, whether it's like from the bog people or not. Um, so it's quite easy to believe that like it, the souls of the people that have been dumped there have then popped out of the mud. Or even just like the bog is needs to be like sated. It longs for blood. <laughs> Sends the wisps out if you haven't been sacrificing enough. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a new creature and We've it's got the a new bog. <laughs> <laughs> the new the new folklore just dropped. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you'd like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.